Three poets in three distant ages born, Greece, Italy, and England did adorn. The first in loftiness of thought surpassed, the next in majesty, in both the last. The force of nature could no further go, to make a third she joined the former two. John Dryden In our attempt to identify the three poets of whom Dryden speaks, we encounter no real difficulty. The Greek, of course, is Homer. The Italian, Virgil. The Englishman, Milton. With the sightless bard of Greece, by whom the fall of Ilium was recounted, and the adventures of Odysseus sung, Milton shared the dark affliction of blindness. It's hard, almost impossible, to believe that two of humanity's greatest minds were deprived of this most vital sense the unveiling faculty of sight. The one eyeless in Ionia, the other in London. Neither Homer nor Milton allowed his gloomy blight to interrupt his life's mission, or to cloud the dazzling brilliance, the inner radiant light with which his fiery soul was at all times aglow. Between the Roman pagan, Virgil, and the English Puritan, Milton, fewer similarities at first glance suggest themselves. The former enjoyed the patronage of a newly minted monarch, an adopted heir to whom a nascent empire had only just been bequeathed. He suffered no disquiet over the recent fall of the Republic, and, in its wake, the lifetime appointments of Julius Caesar and then his grand-nephew, Augustus. Of the former's brazen coup, Virgil was an enthusiastic supporter. While he basked in the profits of the latter's royal boon. Milton, on the contrary, watched not the ascent, but the bloody dethronement of a wayward king. As a vocal champion of the parliamentarian cause, he played an active role in the establishment of the first, albeit short-lived, republic in England, a daring interregnum in which he was honored 
to have participated. Unlike Virgil, Milton was no royalist. He'd rather leap into his own grave than live beneath a monarch's yoke. And so, with the restoration of Charles II, he fled society and lived as an outcast, as a man only partially alive in the eyes of the state. In the opinion of Dryden, to which the exuberant cry of man unanimously consents, these are the poets par excellence, Homer, Virgil, and Milton. Dante laments his exclusion, as do Wordsworth and Keats. Indeed, the Florentine occupies an elevated place, but at a slightly lower stratum. The Brits suffer no embarrassment, as they know themselves to reside at a somewhat lower ledge. Of the three greats, however, one is to be deemed the best of all. John Milton in the judgment of the same poet by whom Virgil was carefully translated and Homer fiercely loved, is Primus inter Paris, first among immortal equals. In choosing Milton as the best, one might accuse Dryden of having been motivated by feelings of national prejudice or local affection, when, in deciding upon such literary matters, purely aesthetic standards ought to have been applied. It should be noted that, while they were countrymen living at the same time and working in the same profession, they were far from friends. Dryden was a ring-kissing, high-church loyalist. Milton, a Puritan supporter of Cromwell. The one applauded the papacy and eagerly awaited the return of the king. The other spurned the Vatican and cursed the very thought of restoration. That's to say, politically, the two were antipodal. This leads one to conclude that Dryden's measure of Milton was less partial than originally thought. Indeed, we might confidently trust in the objectivity of his daring pronouncement. Milton, in whom, according to Dryden, both Virgil and Homer were so seamlessly joined, was born in 1608. His parentage was less divine than Dryden might have you believe, but, as was soon evident to all, 
Nature certainly did confer upon him the gift of genius at a very young age. The poetry of his youth is marvelous, that of his adolescence and early adulthood, gripping. The polemics of his more mature years are unparalleled, and his stately arguments in favor of free speech, education, and the right to divorce are still forwarded by true liberals today. His greatest work, though, and that by which the canon of English literature is sublimely crowned, was written at the twilight of his life. The protectorate had ended. The fiery calls for regicide had extinguished. The radicals had moderated. The state had backslid. And Charles II was, in grand and ceremonious fashion, haughtily restored. Milton suddenly found himself a criminal in his own home. His republican ardor had exhausted itself. His biting polemics had provoked too many for far too long, and he was forced to abandon his station or risk his very life. Long ago he'd set his mind upon writing a national epic, the likes to which Homer from the heights of the Acropolis at Athens and Virgil from the Capitoline at Rome might approvingly nod their heads and tip their hats. He made a list of possible subjects to which he might devote his pen. Of all the fabulous candidates before him, two stood out. The legend of King Arthur, and that of our universal father's ignoble fall. After long hours of deliberation, and a flutter of piety that doubtless shook his heart, he opted to pursue the second, the fall of Adam and his banishment from Eden was to be his glorious theme. He began the daunting project in 1658, at which time he was completely deprived of his vision. For its writing, he relied on his poor daughter, an unconsenting amanuensis whom he severely maltreated. In unpredictable bursts of genius, he would shower her with forty lines in a single breath. Then, in the subsequent moments of calm, these eruptions of eloquence would be read back to him in a steady, subdued cadence. Detained by a minute's reflection, Milton would then proceed to explode yet again, and this time to 
edit or embellish the lines as he saw fit. Thus, the storm of brilliance raged like a hurricane at sea. He remained faithful all the while to the constraints of blank verse and iambic pentameter, the classicist's beloved meter from which silly rhyming was barred. The result, completed in 1665, was 10,558 vigorous lines streaming across the picturesque terrain of twelve mountainous books. I read to you now an excerpt from Book Four, my personal favorite of the dozen. It reveals to us the latent humanity in Satan, and the painful ambivalence by which his soul was daily pierced and racked. It shows the internal sufferings by which the arch-apostate was tormented, and the impossibility of his wish for things to have been different from the way they were. It also introduces to the reader, for the first time, Adam and Eve, esteemed father and mother of our sinful race. We greet them in all their purity and loveliness as they appear in their prelapsarian state, that spotless epic before their fateful tasting of the prohibited tree. And with that, I hope you enjoy this reading of Paradise Lost by John Milton. Book Four Oh, for that warning voice which he, who saw the apocalypse, heard cry in heaven aloud. Then, when the dragon, put to second rout, came furious down to be revenged on men, woe to the inhabitants on earth, that now, while time was, our first parents had been warned, the coming of their secret foe escaped. Happily so scaped his mortal snare. For now, Satan, now first inflamed with rage, came down. The tempter ear, the accuser of mankind, to wreak on innocent frail man his loss of that first battle and his flight to hell. Yet, not rejoicing in his speed, though bold, far off and fearless, nor with cause to boast, begins his dire attempt. 
which nigh the birth now rolling boils in his tumultuous breast, and like a devilish engine back recoils upon himself. Horror and doubt distract his troubled thoughts, and from the bottom stir the hell within him. For within him hell he brings, and round about him nor from hell one step, no more than from himself can fly by change of place. Now conscience wakes despair that slumbered, wakes the bitter memory of what he was, what is, and what must be worse. Of worse deeds, where sufferings must ensue. Sometimes towards Eden, which now in his view lay pleasant, his grieved look he fixes sad. Sometimes towards heaven, in the full blazing sun, which now sat high in his meridian tower. Then, much revolving thus in sighs began. O thou, that, with surpassing glory crown, lookest from thy sole dominion like the god of this new world, at whose sight all the stars hide their diminished heads. To thee I call, but with no friendly voice, and add thy name of sun. To tell thee how I hate thy beams, that bring to my remembrance from what state I fell, how glorious once above thy sphere, till pride and worse ambition threw me down, warring in heaven against heaven's matchless king. Ah, wherefore? He deserved no such return from me, whom he created what I was, and that bright eminence, and with his good upbraided none. Nor was his service hard. What could be less than to afford him praise, the easiest recompense, and pay him thanks? How do? Yet all his good proved ill in me, and wrought but malice. Lifted up so high, I stein subjection, and thought one step higher would set me highest, and in a moment quit the debt immense of endless gratitude, so burdensome, still paying, still to owe, forgetful what from him I still received. And understood not that a, that a grateful mind by owing owes not, but still pays, at once indebted and discharged.
What burden, then, oh, had this powerful destiny ordained me some inferior angel? I had stood then happy. No unbounded hope had raised ambition. Yet why not some other power as great might have aspired, and me, though mean, drawn to his part? But other powers as great fell not, but stand unshaken, from within or from without, to all temptations armed. Hadst thou the same free will and power to stand? Thou hadst. Whom hast thou then or what to accuse? But heaven's free love dealt equally to all. Be then this love accursed, since love or hate, to me alike, it deals eternal woe. Nay, cursed be thou, since against his thy will chose freely what it now so justly ruse. Me miserable, which way shall I fly, infinite wrath and infinite despair? Which way I fly is hell, myself am hell, and... In the lowest deep, a lower deep still threatening to devour me opens wide, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven. Oh, then, at last relent. Is there no place left for repentance, none for pardon left? none left but by submission. And that word disdain forbids me, and my dread of shame among the spirits beneath, whom I seduced with other promises and other vaunts than to submit, boasting I could subdue the omnipotent. I me. They little know how dearly I abide that boast so vain. Under what torments inwardly I groan, While they adore me on the throne of hell. With diadem and scepter, high advanced, The lower still I fall, Only supreme in misery. Such joy ambition finds, But say I could repent, and could obtain, by act of grace, my former state. How soon would high recall high thoughts? How soon unsay what feigned submissions swore? Ease would recant vows made in pain as violent and void. For never can true reconcilement grow where wounds of deadly hate have pierced so 
deep, which would but lead me to a worse relapse and heavier fall. So should I purchase dear, short intermission bought with double smart? This knows my punisher. Therefore, as far from granting he, as I from begging peace, all hope excluded thus, behold, instead of us outcast, exiled, his new delight, mankind created, and for him, this world. So farewell, hope, and with hope, farewell, fear. Farewell, remorse, all good to me is lost. Evil, be thou my good. By thee, at least, divided empire with heaven's king I hold by thee, and more than half, perhaps, will reign. As man, ere long, and this new world shall know. Thus, while he spake, each passion dimmed his face, thrice changed with pale ire, envy, and despair, which marred his borrowed visage and betrayed him counterfeit, if any eye beheld. For heavenly minds from such distempers foul are ever clear, whereof he soon aware, each perturbation smoothed with outward calm, artificer of fraud, and was the first that practiced falsehood under saintly show, deep malice to conceal, couched with revenge. Yet not enough had practiced to deceive Uriel, once warned, whose eye pursued him down the way he went, and on the Assyrian mount saw him disfigured, more than could befall spirit of happy sort. His gestures fierce he marked in mad demeanor, then alone, as he supposed, all unobserved, unseen. So on he fares, and to the border comes of Eden, where delicious paradise, now nearer, crowns with her enclosure green, as with a rural mound the champagne head of a steep wilderness, whose hairy sides, with thicket overgrown, grotesque and wild, access denied, and overhead upgrew insuperable height of loftiest shade, cedar and pine and fir and branching palm, a sylvan scene, and, as the ranks ascend, shade above shade, a woody theater of stateliest view. Yet higher than their tops the verdurous wall of paradise upsprung, which to our general sire gave prospect large into his nether empire neighboring round. 
and higher than that wall, a circling row of goodliest trees, loaden with fairest fruit, blossoms and fruits at once of golden hue, appeared with gay enameled colors mixed, on which the sun more glad impressed his beams than in fair evening cloud or humid bough, when God hath showered the earth. So lovely seemed that landscape, and of pure, now, purer air meets his approach, and to the heart inspires vernal delight and joy, able to drive all sadness but despair. Now gentle gales, fanning their odoriferous wings, dispense native perfumes and whisper whence they stole those balmy spoils as when to them who fail beyond the cape of hope and now are past mozambique off at sea northeast winds blow sabean odors from the spicy shore of araby the blessed with such delay, well pleased, they slack their course. In many a league cheered with the grateful smell, old ocean smiles. So entertained those odors, sweets the fiend, who came their bane. Though with them better pleased than Asmodeus with fishy fume that drove him, though enamored, from the spouse of Tobit's son, and with a vengeance sent from Medea post to Egypt, there fast bound. Now to the ascent of that steep, savage hill, Satan had journeyed on, pensive and slow. But further away found none, so thick entwined, as one continued break. The undergrowth of shrubs and tangling bushes had perplexed all path of man or beast that passed that way. One gate there only was, and that looked east on the other side, which, when the arch-felon saw, due entrance he disdained, and in contempt at one flight bound high overleaped all bound of hill or highest wall, and sheer within lights on his feet, as when a prowling wolf whom hunger drives to seek new haunt for prey, watching where shepherds pen their flocks at even hurtled coats amid the field secure, leaps over the fence with ease into the fold or as a thief, bent to unhoard the cash of some rich burgher, whose substantial doors, cross-barred and bolted fast, fear no assault. In at the window climbs, or over the tiles. So clone this first grand thief into God's fold. So since into his church lewd hirelings climb, thence up he flew, 
And on the tree of life, the middle tree and highest there that grew, sat like a cormorant, yet not true life thereby regain, but sat devising death to them who lived. Nor on the virtue thought of that life-giving plant, but only used for prospect, what well used had been the pledge of immortality. So little knows any but God alone to value right the good before him, but perverts best things to worse abuse or to their meanest use. Beneath him with new wonder now he views, to all delight of human sense exposed, in narrow room, nature's whole wealth, yea more, a heaven on earth. For blissful paradise of God the garden was, by him in the east of Eden planted. Eden stretched her line from Oren eastward to the royal towers of great Seleucia, built by Grecian kings, or where the sons of Eden long before dwelt in Telassar. In this pleasant soil is far more pleasant garden God ordained. Out of the fertile ground he caused to grow all trees of noblest kind for sight, smell, taste. And all amid them stood the tree of life, high, eminent, blooming, ambrosial fruit of vegetable gold, and next to life, our death, the tree of knowledge, grew fast by. Knowledge of good bought dear by knowing ill. Southward through Eden went a river large, nor changed his course but through the shaggy hill passed underneath engulfed. For God had thrown that mountain as his garden mold high raised upon the rapid current, which, through veins of porous earth with kindly thirst updrawn, rose a fresh fountain, and with many a rill watered the garden. Thence united fell, down the steep glade, and met the nether flood, which from his darksome passage now appears, and now, divided into four main streams, runs diverse, wandering many a famous realm and country, whereof here needs no account, but rather to tell how, if art could tell, how from that sapphire found the crisped brooks rolling on orient pearl and sands of gold, with mazy error under pendant shades ran nectar, visiting each plant and fed flowers worthy of paradise, which not nice art in beds and curious knots, but nature boon poured forth profuse on hill and dale and plain both where the morning sun first warmly smote the open field, and where the unpierced shade embrowned the noontide bowers. Thus was this place a happy rural seat of various view, 
groves whose rich trees wept odorous gums and balm, others whose fruit, burnished with golden rind, hung amiable, Hesperian fables true, if true, here only, and of delicious taste. Betwixt them lawns, or level downs, and flocks grazing the tender herb, were interposed, or palmy hillock, or the flowery lap of some irriguous valley spread her store, flowers of all hue, and without thorn the rose. Another side, umbrages, grots, and caves of cool recess, over which the mantling vine lays forth her purple grape, and gently creeps luxuriant. Meanwhile, murmuring waters fall down the slope hills, dispersed, or in a lake, that to the fringed bank with myrtle crowned her crystal mirror holds, unite their streams. The birds their choir apply, airs, vernal airs, breathing the smell of field and grove, attune the trembling leaves, while universal pan, knit with the graces and the hours and dance, let on the eternal spring. Not that fair field of Enna, where Persephone gathering flowers, herself a fair flower by gloomy dis was gathered, which cost Ceres all that pain to seek her through the world, nor that sweet grove of Daphne by Orontes and the inspired Castalian spring, might with this paradise of Eden strive, nor that Nicaean isle, girt with the river Triton, or old Cham, whom Gentiles Amon call and Libyan Jove, hid Amalthea and her florid son, young Bacchus, from his stepdane Rhea's eye. Nor where Abbasan kings their issue guard, Mount Amara, Though this by some supposed true paradise under the Ethiop line, by Nihilus's head, enclosed with shining rock a whole day's journey high, but wide remote from this Assyrian garden, where the fiend saw, undelighted, all delight, all kind of living creatures, new to sight, and strange to a far nobler shape, erect and tall, godlike erect, with native honor clad in naked majesty, seems lords of all. And worthy seemed, for in their looks divine the image of their glorious maker shone, truth, wisdom. Sanctitude severe and pure, severe, but in true filial freedom placed, whence true authority in men. Though both 
not equal, as their sex not equal seemed. For contemplation he and valor formed, for softness she and sweet attractive grace. He for God only, she for God in him. His fair, large front and eye sublime declared absolute rule. And hyacinthine locks round from his parted forelock manly hung clustering, but not beneath his shoulders broad. She, as a veil, down to the slender waist her unadorned golden tresses wore disheveled, but in wanton ringlets waved as the vine curls her tendrils, which implied subjection, but required with gentle sway, and by her eye yielded, by him best received, yielded with coy submission, modest pride, and sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. Nor those mysterious parts were then concealed, then was not guilty shame, dishonest shame of nature's works, honor dishonorable, sin-bred. How have ye troubled all mankind with shows instead, mere shows of seeming pure, and banished from man's life his happiest life, simplicity and spotless innocence? So passed they naked on, nor shun the sight of God or angel, for they thought no ill. So hand in hand they passed, the loveliest pair that ever since in God's embraces met. Adam, the goodliest man of men since born, his sons, the fairest of her daughters, Eve. Under a tuft of shade that on a green stood whispering soft by a fresh fountain side they sat them down and after no more toil of their sweet gardening labor than sufficed to recommend cool zephyr and made ease more easy wholesome thirst and appetite more grateful to their supper-fruits they fell, nectarine fruits which the compliant boughs yielded them, sidelong as they sat reclined on the soft downy bank damasked with flowers. The savory pulp they chew, and in the rind, still as they thirsted, scoop the brimming stream nor gentle purpose, nor endearing smiles wanted, nor youthful dalliance as beseems fair couple, linked in happy nuptial league, alone as they. About them frisking played all beasts of the earth, since wild, and of all chase in wood or wilderness, forest or den. Sporting, the lion ramped, 
and in his paw dandled the kid. Bears, tigers, ounces, pards gambled before them. The unwieldy elephant, to make them mirth, used all his might and wreathed his little proboscis. Close the serpent sly, insinuating, wove with Gordian twine his braided train, and of his fatal guile gave proof unheeded. Others on the grass couched, and now filled with pasture gazing sat, or bedward ruminating, for the sun declined, was hasting now with prone career to the ocean isles, and in the ascending scale of heaven the stars that usher evening rose. When Satan still in gaze as first he stood, scarce thus at length failed speech recovered sad. O oh, hell, what do mine eyes with grief behold? Into our room of bliss, thus high advanced creatures of other mold, earth-born perhaps, not spirits, yet to heavenly spirits bright, little inferior. Whom my thoughts pursue with wonder, and could love, so lively shines in them divine resemblance, and such grace the hand that formed them on their shape that board. Ah! Gentle pair, yea, little think how nigh your change approaches, when all these delights will vanish and deliver ye to woe. More woe, the more your taste is now of joy. Happy, but for so happy, ill-secured long to continue. In this high seat your heaven ill-fenced, for heaven to keep out such a foe as now is entered. Yet no purposed foe to you, whom I could pity thus forlorn, though I unpitied. League with you I seek, and mutual amity, so straight, so close, that I with you must dwell, or you with me henceforth. My dwelling haply may not please, like this fair paradise, your sense. Yet such accept your Maker's work. He gave it me, which I as freely give. Hell shall unfold 
to entertain you too, her widest gates, and send forth all her kings. There will be room, not like these narrow limits, to receive your numerous offspring. If no better place, thank him who puts me loath to this revenge on you who wrong me not for him who wronged. And should I at your harmless innocence melt as I do, yet public reason just, honor an empire with revenge enlarged by conquering this new world compels me now to do what else, though damned, I should abhor. So spake the fiend, and so spake I. With that, dearest friends and devoted listeners, I wish you well, goodbye, and good night.